Good morning again, and welcome to Prairie View Christian Church. Now, if you randomly open up your Bible to just about any page, there is a pretty decent chance that you'll find an angel somewhere close by. For example, we see them at the very beginning in the book of Genesis, guarding the entrance to the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve are expelled for their sin. We see angels again at the very end, singing praises to God in the book of Revelation. We saw a brief mention of an angel in the book of Exodus when we were just studying it. The angel leads the Israelites after they're delivered from Egyptian slavery. In a memorable story in the book of Numbers, God uses a talking donkey and an invisible angel to confront the pagan prophet Balaam. In Judges, an angel calls the reluctant Gideon into God's service. In Psalm 91, verses 11 through 12, which ironically are quoted by none other than Satan in the New Testament, they tell us that angels protect those who dwell in the shelter of the Most High. It says God will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Many of the prophets had visions of angels. Isaiah had one put a burning coal on his unclean lips to purify him. Angels ministered to Jesus after his 40 days and 40 nights of fasting and temptation in the wilderness. They were there when Jesus rose from the dead. They announced to the women at the empty tomb that he is risen. In the book of Acts, an angel breaks Peter out of jail in the middle of the night. And the author of Hebrews tells us that like Abraham in the book of Genesis, when we show hospitality to strangers, we might be caring for angels without even knowing it. They appear quite a bit over and over and over. But with all that being said, there are also negative instances of angels in the Bible. Jude tells us that Satan and his demons were once angels who fell. Paul warns us against worshiping angels. And Paul even says that Satan himself can masquerade as an angel of light. But at their root, angels are spiritual beings. They're created by God to serve him and serve his people. Hebrews 1 verse 14 says, Angels are ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. That's us, those who believe in Christ. Now, when you consider how often angels appear in Scripture and all the spectacular images and descriptions that we get of them, it's no wonder that many people, even who are not actually Christians, are fascinated with the idea of angels. Sometimes the angels that we think of are inaccurate caricatures of what we actually read in the Bible. For example, think of the cute, chubby cherub trinkets in Grandma's dining room hutch. And then try to say cute, chubby cherub three times fast. Sometimes people look forward to becoming angels when they die. We're getting fitted for our wings though that's not exactly biblical either. We sometimes imagine our own special guardian angels. And as much as I love Clarence and it's a wonderful life, that's not necessarily biblical either. The truth is that the overwhelming duty of angels in the pages of the Bible is not to look cute. 
It's not to play harps. It's not to eat cream cheese. And we don't become angels when we die. An angel's primary task isn't to teach people like George Bailey a lesson about what really matters in life. Above everything else, the thing that angels do most in the Bible is relay messages. They are messengers sent from God. And while angels do appear in many parts of the Bible, one of the places they appear the most is in the Christmas story. Angels play important roles in the birth stories of both John the Baptist and Jesus. So why do angels appear so often in this small portion of Scripture? And what might that tell us about what's happening here? What message do these angels share way back then, and why do we still talk about it some 2,000 years, some 2,000 Christmases later? We'll try to answer those questions today through our Christmas Eve service. We'll read about the angels of Advent and the Gospels of Matthew and Luke. So let's start in Luke chapter 1, verse 5. Open your Bibles there. Feel free to use the Bibles here if you didn't bring one, and take one home if you don't have one. But before we read in Luke, let's pray together as a church. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time we have together. Thank you for the Christmas season. Uh, Coming into the sanctuary this morning and seeing a Christmas tree and seeing lights and seeing some bright colors that we don't usually see in the sanctuary. In a time of hardship or frustration or just monotony and routine, sometimes Christmas and Christmas lights and Christmas decorations Uh, can be a source of joy for us, can be refreshing, can be a source of encouragement for us. But ultimately, the real source of joy, the real source of encouragement at Christmas is not lights and stockings and Santa, but it's your son, Jesus Christ, his entrance into the world. And so, Father, over these next few weeks, we will examine that story. And even though we probably are familiar with it, we might even think that we know it well. Remind us that we need to hear it over and over and over again. Remind us that we don't have you figured out. You are an endless well of treasure to be explored and discovered. Your glory is unending. And so, Father, I pray that as we approach your word, we would never do so lightly, that we would never take it for granted that we have this joy and this privilege of learning more about you, even from the stories that we've read before. And Father, thank you that you call us together in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, the one who came in the Christmas story, the one who lived and died and rose and ascended and will return. Father, point our eyes back to his first coming and point our eyes ahead to his second coming. Again, Lord, we love you. We thank you for this privilege to be together and sing and pray and read your word and take communion and give. Father, I pray it's beneficial for us and honoring to you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, starting in Luke chapter 1, verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. And her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, 
because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. So Zechariah and Elizabeth are a solid, godly Jewish couple, the kind of couple you'd love to have in your synagogue. They take their identity as God's chosen people seriously. They're righteous and blameless in their works. And with both being descendants of Aaron, they have impressive Israelite pedigrees. However, there's one thing that Zechariah and Elizabeth are missing. There's one glaring black mark on their resume. And that's the fact that they don't have a child. Elizabeth was barren throughout her childbearing years. And if she wa- even if she wasn't barren, she and Zechariah are both old now. That ship has sailed. There are women and couples in our church who can relate to the sorrow that Zechariah and Elizabeth must have felt. But in their day and age, a culture where descendants meant even more than they do today, and when barrenness was often assumed to be the result of some hidden or unrepented of sin, there was likely an even greater, more painful sense of shame for Zechariah and Elizabeth than we can even imagine. But we pick up in verse 8. Now, while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, Zechariah was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Casting lots was the ancient form of drawing straws. So when Zechariah and his co-workers needed to determine who would go into the temple to offer incense that day, they draw straws. They cast lots. And the lot falls to Zechariah. But this is not pure chance. It's not a coincidence. As Zechariah enters the temple, God is directing each of his steps. We read in Proverbs 16, verse 33, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. That is clearly the case here. The lot falls to Zechariah because God has something to tell him. Zechariah didn't realize it at first, but he was walking into an appointment with an angel. And when Zechariah sees that angel, he responds the only way one can. The only way one does when you see an angel in the pages of the Bible. Zechariah feared. Because again, we're not talking about some cute, chubby cherub. But this angel does have good news. Elizabeth, 
the aging, barren, shamed wife of the aging Zechariah will bear a son. But this son will not be just another baby. He will be great before the Lord, filled with the Holy Spirit, set apart for a specific God-ordained purpose. The truth is, this baby will belong much more to God than to Zechariah and Elizabeth. They don't even get to name him. But the name that God assigns this baby, John, it means God is gracious. And this John will fulfill the final prophecy in the Old Testament in the book of Malachi. John will go in the spirit and power of the prophet Elijah before the great and awesome day of the Lord. He will prime the pump. He will prepare the way for none other than the Messiah, who's been waited for and waited for and waited for for generations. Now, if you're Zechariah, how in the world do you respond to all this? It likely started off as just another day at the office for this priest. He probably offered incense in the temple numerous times before without anything remotely like this happening. Is Zechariah really seeing an angel or is he hallucinating? I mean, incense could have a way of fogging the mind. Can these words possibly be true? And if this is all true, if this is all real, imagine how intimidating Zechariah and Elizabeth's responsibility to raise this baby would be. What do you say if you're Zechariah? Let's see what he says in verse 18. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach from among people. So Zechariah doesn't respond in the way you might expect from such a blameless, righteous, obedient priest. He doubts. As Gabriel puts it, Zechariah did not believe his words. This good news that he was sent to proclaim to him. Now, for what it's worth, Zechariah is not alone in this. When Abraham heard that his aging, barren wife, Sarah would have a son, Abraham doubted too. When Sarah heard it, she laughed out loud. But God responded to Abraham and Sarah by saying in Genesis 18, verse 14, is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Well, the answer to that question is no. 
Nothing is too hard for the Lord. And Zechariah, of all people, should know that. If the Lord can give Sarah a baby, the Lord can give Elizabeth a baby. Because nothing is too hard for the Lord. As a result of his sin, Zechariah is made mute, which likely included being deaf, until Gabriel's message is fulfilled in its time. And sure enough, as you read on, God does just that. When Zechariah left the temple, everyone knew that something strange had happened, but they weren't sure what. Eventually, Elizabeth conceives, because again, nothing is too hard for the Lord. And before John is even born, we see just how different, just how spirit-filled he really is. When the unborn John comes into the presence of Mary and the unborn Jesus, who we'll read about next week, John leaps in his mother's womb. Now, Zechariah and Elizabeth's neighbors didn't know what to think. And can you blame them? They were a mix of joyful, confused, fearful. They could tell that something important was happening here, but they all wondered, what then will this child be? What when will this child be? Well, the rest of the story tells us what this child will be. John goes on to do all the things that God created him to do. He gets his nickname, the Baptist, because he calls Israel to be baptized for repentance of their sins. He warns the people, including and perhaps especially the religious leaders of God's coming judgment. He consistently cries that someone else will come after him whose sandals he's not even worthy to untie. And when he sees Jesus walking by the Jordan River, John announces that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John even would have the privilege of baptizing Jesus. And as the Gospels quickly shift the spotlight away from John the Baptist and toward Jesus, John puts up no fight. When some of John's followers leave him to follow Jesus instead, John insists that Jesus must become greater and he must become less. At one point before his death, John does show some cracks in his faith as he languishes in prison. But Jesus reassures him that he really is the Messiah. And in the end, when John is beheaded by Herod, Jesus praises him as more than a prophet and the greatest of all born of women. He indeed was great before the Lord. So what do we learn from Gabriel's message concerning John the Baptist and everything God did through John to fulfill it? Well, number one, the most obvious lesson as we begin reading the Christmas story is that God has intervened in our world in a miraculous way. Zechariah and Elizabeth had no hope of having a child. That is, until God intervened. God reached down and got involved in this world in an unmistakably supernatural way. Now, that's not to say that God hadn't been involved before. He was. Really, the entire Bible, from cover to cover, is the story of God graciously intervening in our world. But when God sends an angel, his involvement becomes just a little more obvious. 
And as we see in the weeks ahead, God's miraculous intervention in this world doesn't end with John the Baptist. There are more angels to come. There was no life in Elizabeth's womb before God graciously intervened. And likewise, there is no life in sinners like us without God graciously intervening through Jesus Christ. The story of the gospel is God reaching down and bringing life into a world of death, shining light in the darkness, giving sinners with no hope, eternal hope, through his Son. This is a story of God intervening, God getting involved, God reaching down into our world a long, long time ago. And the ripple effect of that is still being felt at this very moment. But on top of that, we should also recognize the universal, the timeless, the cosmic, the eternal significance of this Christmas story. You know, God doesn't send angels for nothing. And in the Christmas story, God sends them time and time and time and time again. Zechariah gets a visit. Mary and Joseph get visits. A group of nameless, faceless shepherds all get visits. They all get announcements from angels. These were the most important announcements they would ever hear. Announcements that would turn the world upside down. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 through 5 are verses that are eventually applied to John the Baptist in the New Testament. And we read there, A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The gospel message still has the power to turn the world upside down. The gospel turns sinners into saints, and enemies of God into friends of God. It tells us of God's promise to bring heaven to earth. It assures us that one day the curse will be reversed. As we read about Jesus, we see blind people seeing, crippled people walking, deaf people hearing. This message turns the world upside down. It did 2,000 years ago, and it still does today. Now, the fact that Zechariah was immediately punished for failing to believe Gabriel's words, that tells us just how important this message really is. But the punishment for rejecting the good news of Jesus Christ is far greater. Eternal life is at stake, not just the ability to speak for nine months or the ability to hear for nine months. The good news that God has provided the only Savior and Lord sufficient for our eternal life. The only Savior and Lord who can save us from the great and awesome day of the Lord, the day of judgment, is the most important message in the world. And finally, today reminds us that the message matters far more than the messenger. The point of this sermon series is not to focus our eyes 
on angels. The angels of Advent, and John the Baptist for that matter, are messengers. They're not the main attraction. At their best, they both point our eyes to Jesus Christ, the one who is far greater than they are. And in a sense, you and I are called to do the same thing. We are called to follow in Gabriel and John the Baptist's footsteps. Now, we definitely aren't angels, and we probably shouldn't claim to be prophets either. But we too are messengers. We too have been sent from God to announce to the world the good news of Jesus Christ's first coming in the past and point people's eyes to his second coming in the future. To shine light in darkness. To share hope with the hopeless. To bring life to the dead. Now as we close, be honest. Even at Christmas, when we feel a little more mystical and whimsical about these biblical stories, do you really believe all this stuff? Do you really believe all this stuff? You know, we might not be that embarrassed to say that we go to church. We might not hesitate to say that we believe in God, especially around Christmas. You're allowed to do that kind of stuff this time of year. But do we really believe in all this stuff? Do we really believe in angels? Do we really believe that a barren, aging woman can have a child? Better yet, do we really believe that a virgin can have a child? Do we really believe that John the Baptist could worship Jesus when they were both still in their mother's wombs? Do we really believe that sinful mankind is in desperate need of a savior and that the Christmas story is the story of his arrival? Do we really believe that this same savior will come again in the clouds of heaven as king and lord and judge? And short, do we really believe that God can, and God has, and God does, and God will miraculously, supernaturally intervene in our world? Do we really believe that none of this is too hard for the Lord? Well, we should, because it's all true. And to this very day, this message still has the power to turn the world upside down. It's a message so important, so grand, so glorious, with such eternal consequences that the first ones God chose to announce it were nothing less than the angels of heaven. So this Christmas season, may we go forth believing and sharing and announcing this good news as well to all who will hear. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for the angels in your word who have given your people so many messages over such a long period of time. But at the same time, Lord, we don't really want to focus our attention on angels. Angels don't want us to focus our attention on them. We focus our attention on your son, Jesus Christ. We read in the New Testament that the gospel is the message in which angels long to look. And yet it's the message that you've given us. The joy, the hope, the peace, 
the promise, the assurance, the purpose, the salvation of your gospel. It's a glorious gift, and it all starts with the incarnation in the New Testament. And so, Father, as we read about the incarnation, as we read about angels appearing and songs being sung and good news being preached and babies being born and the Messiah coming, I pray that we would be in awe of what we read. Even if we don't see any angels between now and Christmas Eve, thank you for this message of the gospel that ought to bring us more joy and more peace and more hope than any appearance of any angel ever could. Again, Lord, we love you. We praise you. We thank you that you have turned the world upside down, shown your light into this world of darkness, and that through your son, Jesus Christ, sinners like us can be saved. We can look forward to the day of judgment, not with trembling, not with dread, but with joy and expectation, anticipation, knowing that our Lord is coming that our reward is coming, that his kingdom is coming. He came once, and he he will come again. Father, find us faithful when that day comes. We love you. We praise you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.